My husband, in 2010, most of you know the story, but for those of you who don't, I'll just fill you in on a couple of details. In 2010, we had stayed one night off the coast of Rhode Island, just a quick trip. It had been very, uh, just a very busy week, and so he called me, said, pack some overnight bags, we're just going to go away for the night, and just take a break. And I was like, oh, great. So we went to uh, Narragansett, Rhode Island, and uh, spent one night. And the next morning we were, I was packing up to go, and he said, let me take the kids one more time to the water. And it was June, and the water was still cold, and there were no other idiots out there in that water but my, my family. And so uh, when he came back to the room, I noticed that he was leaving a little red, like a crescent moon everywhere he walked. And I said, did you step on something? He said, I don't think so. And I said, well, you're, you're leaving a little trail of blood. Let me check it out. So I cleaned it up. I bandaged it up. Didn't look that bad. And we went home. And uh, after a while, um, it just sort of would not heal. It, it never properly healed. But there was no indication of infection. He never had a fever, um, never a line of, of uh, the red line that you look for, nothing like that. And so I didn't pay it too much attention, um, but uh, after a little while, one Sunday, it was the beginning of our missions conference that year, and I was playing the piano for the service, and he was making some announcements, and I saw him, uh, actually, this is left leg, I saw him put his leg up inside the pulpit and lean on the pulpit. And I thought, well, that's odd. He's never done that before. I hope he's all right. And then he went on with the service. A missionary was preaching that day, so he didn't preach. But I was watching him and just, you know, you know how you do. You know something's not quite right. And, um, and so I said to him, uh, I went down after the service, found him in his office. He had gone straight down to, to the office, and I found him wrapped in baby blankets. And, uh, and I thought, oh, goodness, maybe he's got the flu. I don't know. But something in me said, we need to go to the ER. And uh, if, you're, if you're married to a strong man like I am, that's the last place they want to go, right? <laughs> but I think it was just, I know it was. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit just said to me, you're going to lose him if you don't get him to go. And I just said to him, I said, honey, I don't mean to, you know, you know I never tell you what to do. But if we don't go get you checked out, I'm going to lose you. I believe that. And he agreed to go to a walk-in clinic. Now, I've always called my husband Superman. We first met right out there in the middle of the street on the, at the other side of the Memorial Auditorium. He asked me for our first date, and, and uh, I, I would have married him on the spot. I was like, who are you? Yes, to, to everything. <laughs> Just ask me right now. I, I will gladly go. <laughs> And I, I remember I turned him, so the, he was in Division 5, I was in Division 4, and some of you will know what that means. We should have been arch enemies. Um, but uh, I watched him walk all the way down the sidewalk, and I actually physically like, took a step to follow him. And uh, boy, that was not like me. Um, but there was something special about him, just the way he walked. He walked like John Wayne. And, and, you know, I was like, I don't know if I'm a fan of John Wayne, but I'm a fan of that man. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I met him over there, and, boy, he was always as strong as an ox. My husband, at one time, to get our church off the ground, had four jobs in addition to pastoring. He drove a school bus. 
He drove an ambulette. He delivered baked goods. He, he's a hard worker. I married a very hard worker. And, um, and I've always called him Superman. I once saw him carry a washing machine up steps by himself. He's 6'5", so he's got a big wingspan. But, I mean, you can see, I, he's always been my Superman. So we get to the, to the walk-in clinic, and uh, the doctor comes in right away, and it's Sunday afternoon, nobody wants to be there, and we just got the sense from the man, he just didn't want to be there. And so um, he just quickly looked him over, he said, he's got the flu, I'm going to give him some Cipro, have him take this for a couple weeks, go see your doctor. I said, okay. Well, I didn't know Cipro is like the strongest oral antibiotic you can take. And it started flipping him upside down. And uh, before we left the office that day, though, I said to the, the doctor, I said, you know, he cut his foot a few weeks ago, and it just hasn't healed right. Could you take a look at it and just see it? And, and he's like, yeah, I can take a look at it, but that's not what's causing this. And I said, well, just humor me. Will you just look at his foot? So he did. He said, yeah, this is not related. I said, oh, okay. So you do what you do, right? He's the doctor. So you think they're all smart. And I'm not being critical of any medical personnel in this room, but in the last 13 years, I've learned just because you have an MD after your name does not mean you graduated at the top of your class. And so we went on our way, and after a few days, I called them back, and I said, he is so bad. You know, he can't even sit, he can't even brush his own teeth now. You know, what do I do? And the doctor's like, it's just the antibiotics working. They're just doing their job. Okay. <laughs> and so at the end of two weeks, he was, he was struggling so bad. I said, can we just go back? You know, well, now it's a Saturday. <laughs> and he said, let's just go back to the clinic. I don't want to go to the ER. Okay. So we go to the clinic. There's a different doctor on call this time. And she looked at me, and she looked at him. She said, do not stop for a Coke at McDonald's. Do not, do not run an errand. Get to the emergency room right now. And I said, it's his foot, isn't it? And she said, it is. <sighs> I knew it. I knew it. Oh, so we got to the hospital, and of course, uh, I won't go into all the details, I wish I had time, but uh, he had half of his foot amputated to spare his life, and that set us, he was 90 minutes away from going to heaven, and, um, and then in 2019, he had a second amputation um, for his complete left foot. He still has eight inches below the knee. How many of you have a loved one, or maybe you yourself are an amputee? Is there anybody like that in this room? Okay, then you know about something called phantom pain. My husband dealt with severe phantom pain, and what that means is, and if you have the mirror back there, would you bring that out to me? What that means is, if you are missing a, an appendage, an arm, a hand, a, a foot, thank you so much, um, you can still have pain, in that extremity. I know it's weird, right? But you feel like, like my husband would say, I feel like I have an ingrown toenail on my big left toe. It's impossible. It's not there anymore. But the pain would be so severe 
that you couldn't even tell him it's not there. He couldn't tell himself it's not there. And one day my husband was preaching in um, Trenton, Missouri. And uh, a lady walked up to me and she said, I work at a wound care center. She said, "Um, does your husband struggle with phantom pain? I see he's an amputee. Does he struggle with phantom pain? I said, yes. And she said, has anybody ever told you about mirror therapy? Mirror therapy. I said, no. She said, are you serious? I said, no. She said, well, let me explain to you about it. I'll give it to you in a nutshell. You can go ahead and put up that first slide if you want to. Um, We're going to talk about a season of healing, mirror therapy today. So she said, this is what you do. Your husband's missing his left foot. So you're going to put his right foot in front of the mirror. And when he looks into the mirror, he will see there is a left foot there. And when his mind realizes there's a left foot there, it's going to teach it, I don't have any pain there. It's gone. It's, I'm mirroring this foot. It's only there because the pain is only there because the hurt is not there. The, the foot is not there. I'm imagining it because I'm actually seeing myself as healed and whole, and it's only phantom pain. I don't know if those of you over here can see it, but you can clearly see how it looks like a mirror image of the other foot, right? If you did the same thing with your hand, it would be like you're seeing your left hand in the mirror. And I will tell you, that did something to his brain. And it helped him to process, no, I am healed, I am whole. The pain is is mental. It's not real. It's not there. And over a process of time, it helped that phantom pain to completely diminish. What a miracle. What a gift we received from a lady who just took the time to tell us about that. And I guarantee you, she probably graduated at the top of her class. (laughs) But the Bible has something to say about this. This mirror therapy. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Changed into the same image from glory to glory. Seeing yourself healed and whole helps you function as healed and whole. You can put aside the pain and not let it influence your path through life when you are changed from the same image from glory to glory. Years ago, I had a teenage girl ask me a question. In fact, she's in this room today because she's in college here, and I don't know if she'll remember this or not. But she asked me, she said, Miss Amy, why do people have children in their teens and 20s but don't start working on themselves until their 30s and 40s? I said, boy, I don't know, but that's quite a loaded question. I think it's probably not until we look in the face of somebody who's mirroring us that we realize just how many weaknesses we have. Arrested development arises when a person is stuck in an early phase of emotional development. It results from trauma, grief, or neglect. It may occur when a child, preteen, or adolescent is subject to an experience that they are unable to resolve. This manifests itself in depression, disillusion, hysterias, abuse, drug and alcohol addiction, lack of character, bitterness, and many more symptoms that manifest themselves circumstantially. One basically processes all of life 
at the age their development was arrested. Think about that. Have you ever acted in a way where you thought, why am I acting like a 12-year-old? There might be a reason for that. You are just as important to God as the best Christian you know is. Now, the Bible does not label good Christians, best Christians. We're all just supposed to be coming more like Jesus Christ every day. But we do that. We label people. Oh, they're such a great Christian. They're such a great, you know, you're just as important to God as that person is that you think of in, your, in the highest of esteem. You are just as important to God as they are. You are his child. He does not tolerate you. He does not put up with you. He loves you. Your pain is real. But seeing who you are in the mirror of God's word will reveal the healed woman who is truly there. True healing and relief from the sting of emotionally and mental, emotional and mental pain we feel only comes from looking into the word of God and allowing it to transform us. We will finally see ourselves the way God sees us, healed and whole. James 1, through 25 says, But be ye doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving your own selves. For if any be a, doer, a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man, or this woman, shall be blessed in his deed. We must proceed in life every day as a child of God, who is healed and whole because we can, because we are. So many times we don't get the healing we need because we want the reason for the hurt in the first place. Can I tell you something? There, there just is never going to be that light bulb moment in this life where all of a sudden God is just going to let the bing go on over your head and you're going to say, oh, that's the reason why this happened to me. I realized that when I was sitting in an MRI waiting room for my husband to figure out what was going on with his foot, and I was just wrestling with God. Why are you doing this? Why? We got, we got a young son who needs his dad to play basketball with him. We, you know, I was wrestling with God about, why are you doing this? And God very gently pointed out to me, there's never going to be one reason why I allow anything. I'm so much bigger than that. What there are going to be, or what there is going to be, are a million flickers of light that will shed light along the way of why I allowed this into your life. You're going to meet somebody who doesn't know me. You're going to encounter somebody at some point who has a hurt. You're going to be able to be a wife unlike Job's wife, and I have a lot of compassion for Job's wife, but... God told me, sit in the ash heap with him. Don't let him be in there alone. But God can help us get through each of these circumstances when we stop asking, make it all okay. It's not going to be like that till we get to heaven. You, you may never know anything that makes it okay for you. You know, if, if, 
Honestly, if I could take my husband and give him his leg back, there's so many things that have happened along the way where I would say, God, his leg is more important than that. It's more, his health is more important than that. When uh, my husband first landed in the hospital, they started throwing every antibiotic at him to, to try and get, his, to get him out of being septic. And they even gave him antibiotics for HIV patients. And that just imploded his immunity. And he would get a cold. We have to go back to the ER. It's been a struggle for him for 13 years. And there will never be a reason where I will say, God, that one thing there, yeah, I'd have that happen still. <laughs> I want my husband to be healed and whole. But God said there, there won't be that one time where whatever I would say to you in this moment will not make this okay. So you're going to have to let it not be okay. And you're going to have to let me heal you and make you whole. Here are some steps to healing. We all need it. Even if you don't think that you, even if you think you've, you've had a pretty easy life, you haven't really had a major catastrophe or a major blow up, I promise you something along the way affected you. Here's some steps to healing. Number one, healing begins with a single step toward God. A baby step is still a step. Just draw nigh to him. James 4, 8, cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. I'm sorry, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. That's the rest of the verse I just read. A baby step is still a step. Number two, healing includes turning away from sin. We cannot let the soot of this world bog us down when we're trying to get closer to the one who can truly give the healing that we need. Don't you feel filthy when you stop to get gas and all, of you, can, all you can hear is that song you knew when you were 16? I can't tell you, you know, those of us who've had musical experience, <laughs> I, you know, I had, it, like, it's like once it got up there, it stayed up there. And I'm in the grocery store, and next thing I know, I'm singing along with it. I'm like, God, I feel dirty. Cleanse me from that. I don't want that. Draw nigh to God. He will draw nigh to you. Turn away from sin. I can't be perfect, but I can always pursue righteousness. Number three, healing is not trying to be better than another person. It's trying to be better than the previous me. 2 Corinthians 10, 12, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not what? Are not wise. I'm not trying to outdo anybody. I can't. I can't. I came from such brokenness. I can't, I can't think of myself as being anything without God's strength. Don't compare yourself. My spiritual walk is just that, mine. I don't have to copy anybody else. I don't have to be a, a carbon copy or a replica of anybody else. It's my spiritual walk. And I learned a long time ago, my identity is not found in what has happened to me. It is found in what has happened in me. And I'm a child of God. And isn't he wonderful to call us that? He could have called us, you know what, you guys, you're my pets. You're my bestie. <laughs> but he calls us his child. What an amazing thing. Number four, healing is stretching into the next phase of life without leaving the previous lessons learned behind. Second Peter 1.5 says, and beside this, 
giving all diligence, add to your faith. This generation, seriously, has been peer pressured into deconstructing their faith. That's the big term now. I'm going to deconstruct my faith. Young women in your 20s in this room, please let me admonish you out of a heart of love. Don't spend one second tearing down your faith or the faith of your friend. Build their faith. Build your faith. You don't know what's coming down the path for you. And if your faith is not strong and secure, you will be like that house built on the sand. And can I say this too lovingly? Please, I'm I'm really saying this out of a heart of care for you. If everybody is triggered from something, then nobody's triggered. It's just normal life. If everybody has anxiety, then nobody has anxiety. It's just normal life. If everybody's been traumatized, nobody's been traumatized. It's just normal. Really look at your life and evaluate it. And if you had parents that did at all anything to help you be the person that you have become, can I say this? If they chose to give you life, and I know there's a lot of hurt in this room. People have been abused. Serious things have happened. But you are here. God let you be born. Can you just acknowledge that? You know, maybe I... Maybe there are people that really have trauma. Maybe, my, maybe what I'm thinking is trauma is just that thing just happened in my family, but boy, God sure helped us go on. Can you get to the place where you're not peer pressured by social media and what you're seeing and famous people who you can look in their eyes and know, you didn't pick this up. Because <laughs> if you picked this up, You wouldn't be tearing down all the things that everything, everybody's teaching, everybody's a bad person, all of it's bad. No, God is good no matter who has done what. And my mom taught me from the time I was a little girl, you can never judge the character of God by the character of any human being. God's character is perfection, and people will let you down, but God never will, never will. Don't leave those lessons from the previous stage behind. Add to your faith and dead sure, don't get sucked into deconstructing it. Number five, healing means never arriving at a final destination in this lifetime. Psalm 17, 15, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. I'll never reach the place where I don't disappoint myself but I can reach the place where I understand how much God is pulling for me and rooting for me to draw closer to him. And I'll be working on that till I'm 105 and wrinkled unless he comes back or takes me home. I can always be moving toward him. Number six, healing means that I must pursue a close, authentic, personal relationship with my heavenly father. Psalm 73, 28. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Relying on the strength of someone else's relationship with God hinders the growth and strength of mine. 
I can't rest. My husband is the greatest Christian that I've ever met in my life. But I can't just ride on his coattails. I have to have my own relationship with the Lord. And let me just say, uh, I've said this a few times, and, and I know there's some people who strongly disagree with me. And again, I say this out of love. I am not against devotional books. I think they can be a wonderful tool. But they are not meant to be a replacement for reading your Bible. If you want to use the devotional book as, boy, that, that, that thought helped me, and, oh, that's a great verse to go along with it, wonderful. But if that's all you read, at best, you are getting someone else's secondhand relationship with God. You are not getting a firsthand relationship with your Heavenly Father. They can be great tools. They're not a replacement. I remember a few years ago, I heard a, a TV anchor talk about having her private devotions in the morning, and I thought, wow, she's a Christian? I didn't know. And she said, I'm going to share on the air right now what I read this morning in my devotions. And she pulled out a devotional book and read the thought from the book as if it were the Bible. And I thought, Lord, it's no wonder why we are where we are. Relying on the strength of someone else's relationship with God hinders mine. Number seven, healing means that I must never let someone else's negative view of their relationship with God hinder the growth and strength of mine. John 16, 33. Boy, this is important today. <laughs> this is important today. I believe in hearing people out. I don't believe in letting them have a negative influence on my life. John 16, 33, these things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Every truth I've ever learned about God must remain steadfast in my heart, even if the whole world were to change their beliefs about him. If I truly were the last woman standing, that's how strong my faith should be, because that's how strong God is. You've all heard the saying, hurt people hurt people. But healed people heal people. They don't do the healing. But they allow God to use them in such a way that they can convey the truths that they have gleaned from him to be a blessing to our lives. And I want to be that kind of person. I don't know if the name Millie Diener is familiar to anybody in this room. I'll just give her story quickly in a, in a quick synopsis. She was raised by her grandparents. Her, her parents were um, missionaries that traveled a lot, and she resented that. She wanted to be with her parents, but she grew up in a... Uh, she had loving grandparents, but as anyone would, she would just have rather been with her parents. But as she grew up and got married, uh, it was a time in this country where people were really talking about, you know, praying down things from God and expecting God to do this and pray expecting and all of that. And finally it hit her that she never accepted what God had brought in her life and her childhood. And she said, God, I'm going to learn how to pray like never before through these things that I'm, that I'm going through. And she became known as the first lady of prayer. When Billy Graham met her and her husband, uh, and I don't know what your opinions are about Billy Graham, but you can't deny people were saved in the Crusades. But he asked Millie Diener, would she lead a team of women to go to every city where he was going to do a crusade, and 30 days before, that they would bathe that city in prayer. 
Did you ever hear about that? Because I didn't. I never heard there was a band of prayer warriors going to break up that fallow ground of that city. But in heaven, who's going to get more credit for that? Billy Graham, who preached the messages, or Millie Diener, who got those women to be warriors on their knees? But this is how she arrived at that. She told herself a phrase, stop expecting and start accepting. This is our season in life, whatever has come, whatever age you are, circumstances you have, whatever it is, stop expecting to get out of it. God may deliver you. But like the the young men in the fiery furnace, they had to go in. Start accepting. You will see miracles like you have never seen. There's a four-word sort of little mantra that I have told myself when things start to come in my life. And those words are this, breathe, feel, pray, and heal. I think so many times when a hurt comes in, we just try to, I'm supposed to be stronger than this. Let me get over it. No, first, breathe. Take a deep breath because you're going to need a minute to gather yourself. And then feel it. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to feel these things that are going to come as a result of this trepidation that has been brought into your life. Bring it to God. Only God can provide the supernatural healing that we need and then begin to let him heal you. Your season of healing can begin today if you will allow him to start working in your life. It really is a choice. God is waiting. God is waiting there to give you this. But it's a choice that you have to make. God, I want it. I want to be healed and whole. I don't, want to, I don't want to keep acting like I did when I was hurt as a 14-year-old. I want to be beyond that. I want to be so close to you that I'm healed from that. I want to share with you just very quickly something that God showed me within the last six months. Maybe this is something that all of you knew or observed before, but it hit me like a ton of bricks. There's a verse in the Bible that uh, I started claiming in 2010 when my husband got sick, and that's Malachi 4.2. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth as calves of the stall. And I would claim that verse and pray over that verse, God, please, you know, heal. I believe you're going to heal him. I believe you're going to heal him. <laughs> and I still pray over that verse. And I've sent that verse to many of you probably if you were going through a, t- a health crisis or a time of sickness. But God showed me something about that verse that actually starts, and I'm really going to just give this in a synopsis very quickly. But in Numbers 15, and I'm going to read this quickly. Numbers 15, if you can keep up, great. If not, you can uh, write these references down. Starting at verse 37, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations. And they that put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe that ye may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes after which ye used to go whoring that ye may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. I am the Lord your God which brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. I started picking apart Malachi 4.2, and I'm like, okay, that word wings, does that literally mean he's got wings? 
I know there's other references in the Bible where, as a hen, I would have gathered you and things like that, wings of eagle. But does that really mean wings? A bird is not referenced there. What does that mean? And I came to discover that this little passage here, the fringe of the borders, it's the same word as wings in Malachi 4.2. It's the same Hebrew word, and I'm not going to say this correctly because my husband tried to teach me to say it a million times, and I don't think I'm going to get it correctly. But the Hebrew word is konof, and it means an edge or extremity, a wing, a flap, a border. Same word. When you go to the book of Ruth, chapter 2, and again, I'm just going to go ahead and read once I get there. Then she fell on her face, I'm at verse 10, and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I'm a stranger? This is Ruth talking to Boaz. And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast uh, I'm sorry, all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother in the land of thy nativity and art come into a people which thou knewest not heretofore, the Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings thou art come to trust. It's the same word. The border, the edge, the fringe. In chapter 3 and verse 9, this is so interesting. And he said... Who art thou? This is when Ruth has gone in, you know, to where the, the uh, where they had gone and were working overnight, Boaz and the men. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Have you ever wondered why she did that? I've heard people say a myriad of things. It was the custom. It was this. It was that. She was hum uh, humbling herself. Can I tell you that word skirt? It's the same Hebrew word. She was telling Boaz, I've been so hurt. I lost my husband. I lost everything. I lost my father and my mother. God brought me here. Can you provide some healing for me? You're my kinsman. You're, according to your law, this is, what, this is how you can help me. Can you give me healing? That's why she did it. Pulling his, the end of his garment over her feet. How amazing is that? Turn to the book of Luke, chapter 8, and verse 44, and we are almost done. We come to the woman with the issue of blood. She's talked about in three of the Gospels. Only John does not mention her. But we know she's famous for doing what? Touching the hem of his garment. And actually, Luke and Mark uh, don't give a piece of vital information that Matthew does. But in Luke 8.44, it says, She came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood stanched. Now, obviously, the New Testament was not written in Hebrew. It was in Greek. And the Greek word is, again, I will mispronounce this. I am no Greek scholar. Graspidon. It means a margin, a fringe, a tassel, a border, a hem. In Matthew, it gives the account of where she says, if I can but touch his garment, I shall be made whole. Here's what hit me about that story. She came to Jesus. She heard he was going to be there. She didn't even have to talk to him, and she knew it. All I have to do is touch his garment, and he will heal me. How'd she know that? 
And again, for this account, I've heard a myriad of reasons. Uh, it was almost like superstition. You know, if, if, if he really can heal, then, it's, then I don't even have to talk to him. I can just touch him. Well, then why didn't she reach for his arm? Why didn't she reach for putting her hand on his back? No, she went for the border of his clothes. Why? Because she knew what God had said in Malachi 4.2. After Malachi, God did not speak to them for 400 years. There was no communication. But yet somehow, and I really believe this, the Bible does not tell us this, but I really believe why else would she have reached out her hand to grab the hem of his garment, except she knew that, but unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. It's the same word, the border, the edge, the fringe. And Jesus said unto her, what? Daughter. Why did he say that to her? Because after 12 years of her infirmity, nobody was close to her anymore. She was dirty. She was unclean, the Bible word, unclean. She had no relationship with anybody anymore at all. But she was hanging on to, if this is really the Messiah, and I believe he is, I've heard about what he's doing, I think this is him, then all I have to do is reach out and touch where the healing is. The representative of God in Numbers, all the way through the Old Testament, Ruth did the same. They knew it. They knew it. It doesn't change the story. This lady got her healing. Everything is great. We're still talking about it 2,000 years later. But here's the difference it made to me. Do I know who I'm coming close to when I need the healing that only he can provide? Do I acknowledge him for being that for me? You know, if you go on, we, we will, won't take the time to read it, but I'll give you the reference. In Mark 6.56, people started bringing their loved ones who were infirmed out in the street and laying them there so that when Jesus would walk by, they could just grab his garment. Were they superstitious? Were they thinking, oh, he's going to sprinkle some magic dust on me as he walks by? They knew what they were doing. Reach up and touch where the healing is because he's the only one that has it. That's how we know who he is. When we walk around this world like we're, we've not been healed, like we've not been made whole, we are, making a, we are taking out a billboard to the world. He's not strong enough. He's not who he said he is. We do not take the time to look into the mirror of God's word and see the reflection of ourselves. You know what? That phantom pain, it still bothers me every once in a while, but it's not real. This is real. The healing that God can give is real. This is who I am. I am healed. I am whole. I am not perfect, but I am connecting to the one who can get it done for me. I'm not going to rely on a person. They're hurt too. They're hurt like me. I'm not going to rely on them for healing. I'm going to look into the perfect law of liberty and see myself as God sees me, healed in the power of his son. I have asked Lacey if she would come and sing that song again. It's enough just to know he's there. It's enough just to know he hears my every prayer. We're going to open up the altar for an invitation 
from the moment she starts singing that first word, maybe not this session, but another session has spoken to your heart in some way, or maybe even a song or split session, or maybe you were reading your Bible this morning and you're like, Lord, thank you for showing me that. Would you come forward to the altar? You can begin singing whenever you're ready. Would you come forward? Would you, coming to the altar does something in your heart. It does something in your life. Would you acknowledge God for being the healer that he is? Would you make your life a billboard to the world that you know who he is? And all you have to do is touch the hem of his garment. He will heal you. He will help you. He is strong enough. He is big enough. He is all powerful. He knows what you've been through. He knows what's going to come down the pipe for you. And he's the only one that can fix this for you. Let him heal you. Some of us have been carrying around baggage for years. Let him help you put it down. He will. He will help you. He will heal you. If you are not saved in this room today, I know that was mentioned a little while ago, would you please accept Jesus as your Savior? There's nothing more important than the healing of your eternal soul. Would you please receive him as your Savior today? Please don't, don't leave here without making sure it is settled in your heart. It's enough. He's enough.